Well, good evening. It's wonderful to be here. It's wonderful to have the opportunity to make new acquaintances, to enjoy new family, and to be reminded of the ever-dwelling nature of the kingdom that we serve. We are reminded that there are outposts of our Lord Jesus Christ all over this land, all over this world. And it has been wonderful to be able to travel to see good Christians all over the place. And I do mean all over the place. It is wonderful to be here. It is a welcome reprieve from some of our travels over the past few weeks. It is good to finally make your acquaintance. There had been a hope that we would be able to come uh, earlier in May. That was uh, uh, quickly dissatisfied by how much we had to pack in our house. But we are glad to be here. We're glad to have had the opportunity to have had lunch with several of the elders and the deacons today at Larry's Pizza, which was a very innovative pizza joint, I must say. It was wonderful to be there. I must confess, I found out this is actually not my first time at this congregation. Uh, As I was speaking to my parents about where we were and letting them know what the situation was, they said, Fairview Park. They said, we actually attended there when you were two years old. And then I kid you not, my mother said, you ought to see if you remember anybody from there. (laughs) I'm going to be as honest with you as I am going to be with her. I do not remember any of you, regardless of whether you were there or not. But it is good, apparently, to be back here amongst the saints here at Fairview Park. When a preacher's deciding what he's going to preach, particularly in the first time he's, he's meeting an audience, there's always that question of what exactly do you preach? How exactly do you connect with an audience? How exactly do you find common ground, particularly in the opportunity where perhaps we're looking to work together? And I think perhaps the best way to introduce oneself as a preacher is to simply talk about what is the gospel that we claim to serve? What is the good news that we claim to preach. And so that's very simply what we're going to talk about tonight and tomorrow morning, is what is the gospel? Now, quite frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, there are far more eloquent ways than what I'm going to speak. In fact, I think perhaps the simplest and the most eloquent way to describe what the gospel is is in Mark chapter 1. And quite frankly, I'm kind of cheating as a preacher because really, I'm just going to tell you what Mark chapter 1 says because I find that the gospel writer is a far more eloquent speaker than I, and he is far more brief than I find myself often being. Each one of the four gospel writers is writing to a different audience. They are writing in different contexts. They are writing with different purposes in mind. And I think it speaks to the incredible life of our Lord Jesus Christ, that people who were with him, people that are hearing from him secondhand, they all pick up on different aspects of who he is. There are different parts of who Jesus is that resonate with these gospel writers, and they think that it will resonate with their audiences. Luke is is this beautiful, flowing historical account that covers not only the life of Jesus, but indeed the work of Jesus through the Spirit in the book of Acts. John is captivated by the love that Jesus brings into his disciples' life. Matthew speaks of the great prophetic fulfillment that Jesus was, that seamless continuity between uh, Jewish life and the new life of the Christian. And then Mark just kind of comes in and punches you in the face. He is so terse, he's so abrupt, but he's doing it because he wants you to be surprised by who Jesus is. And I think that's an important point for us who have been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40 years to remember is that Jesus is a shocking figure. Jesus is not the status quo. Jesus is the change that the world had been waiting for. And so when Mark presents who Jesus is, he sums up very simply in Mark chapter 1 at the very beginning. He makes no bones about who he thinks Jesus is. He says the beginning of the gospel, we'll talk about that word, the good news 
of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants you to know up front who this man is. This is no historical tale of some individual. This is the story of the Son of God. And he then begins to actually talk not so much about Jesus, but about John the Baptist. We'll talk about why that's important. But a few verses later in chapter 1 and verse 14, it says that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, and here's Mark's summary of what the gospel is. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What it kind of makes you as a preacher feel kind of lame. It's like, man, he summed it up in three sentences, and I'm about to take three whole lessons to try to explain what he's saying here. But this, to Mark, this is the gospel writ short. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You can almost see there's a three-part setup, which isn't it convenient that we have three lessons to go through. You can see there's this, this background that he's speaking of, the time is fulfilled. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. What does it mean that the time was fulfilled? There's something going on. Mark, in fact, is assuming, as I think all four of the gospel authors do, is assuming you know something of this time. He's assuming you have some of the background of the Old Testament, that you understand that Jesus' story does not pop up out of nowhere, but is indeed the culmination of hundreds and thousands of years of a great plan for the redemption of mankind and all of creation. So we're going to talk tonight, what does it mean that the time is fulfilled? But first, I want us to understand, just as perhaps as an overview, what does it mean when we say this word, the gospel? That's a word that we tend to readily accept, particularly those of us who have been Christians for a long time. That's a word that's just part of our common vocabulary. But interestingly enough, it's actually not a Christian word in origin. The gospel writers are not making up a new word to describe this. They're actually tapping in to an existing Greek word. And I think the context of this is just fascinating. I do not want you to look at this and think, oh man, he's a really fancy Greek scholar. I can barely read that word. I had to look up a translation. But I think this word is important to understand. This word, euangelion, this is the word that is translated for us as gospel. And oftentimes it is translated as good news. And that's kind of the way that we sum up the gospel. It is the good news that Jesus has brought. Indeed, Isaiah tells the people how beautiful are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. But the gospel writers are tapping into something really cool here with this idea of good news. It's an existing Greek word. It's a word that was actually quite common in the days of the first century. Now again, when we think of the word, we think in a Christian context. In fact, it's so Christian to us, that's where we get the word evangelism from. When we're evangelizing somebody, we're talking about the good news to someone. But what did it mean in the first century to claim that you had good news? What you see on the screen here is called the Preen Calendar Inscription. This is actually a Greek text from the first century. If you see the very first word up there, Augustus. That is Augustus Caesar. That is the first official Caesar. Julius Caesar himself never actually became emperor. He was stabbed before he was able to complete the attempt. Instead, his nephew, who would eventually become known as Augustus, became the first emperor. 
That context is what we find the word euangelion used for. Good news meant two things in a Greco-Roman culture. It meant, one, that there was a great military victory. Not the sense that, you know, a small skirmish had broken out and we had won, but we had defeated the enemy. Utterly and decisively, an enemy of Rome has been destroyed. And then the other good news that would occur is the good news that's going on here in Augustus. Listen to how this is read. Augustus, whom providence has filled with virtue for the benefit of humanity and has in her beneficence granted us a savior who has made war to cease, who shall put everything in peaceful order. And whereas Caesar, when he was born, transcended the expectations of all who had anticipated the good news, that same word, euangelion, with the result that the birth date of our God signaled the beginning of good news for the world because of him. Good news was used to herald the birth of an emperor. In Roman culture, the emperor very quickly became associated with the divine. It's a very common feature in many of the ancient empires. We see it with the Egyptians. Their pharaoh was considered divine. It's a whole part of the storyline of Exodus. The Persian emperors considered themselves divine. The Babylonian emperors considered themselves divine. Roman emperors were no different. And so when a Roman emperor came to the throne, it was quite literally the birth of a god. Do you see how subversive that is? Do you see how much that worms into a Roman conscience for a poor backwater Jerusalem tribe to say, no, we have good news. You merely think you have good news. You merely think you have won a victory. You merely think your God has been born. No, we have something to tell you from this backwater of Galilee. The, the God-man has come. Jesus of Nazareth, this poor carpenter from nowhere, the equivalent of nowhere, Kansas. Kansas, not Arkansas. Arkansas is not nowhere. Kansas, those other people. The God-man has been born. The good news of Jesus Christ. Do you see perhaps why within mere decades Rome would realize the threat that this was and attempt to stamp it out? Do you see why the greatest empire that the world had seen to date recognized that it now had a rival? and that within several hundred years would be overtaken by that rival. The good news, the gospel, is surprising. It is subversive. It claims all of our allegiance. We often make a statement that Christianity is not a political movement in a very true way that's accurate. Christianity is not partisan. Christianity does not take part in the petty squabbles of the world but the claim of the good news is very political in the sense that it says there is only one king. There is only one God. And particularly the first century, that was a very political claim. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar cannot be Lord. When we proclaim the good news of the gospel, we must be making a similarly radical claim. That when we claim allegiance to the kingdom of Christ, we are saying there is no kingdom that can match it. No matter how much we may appreciate the good blessings that we've been given here in this land, and we have been given many, we must always recognize that whatever allegiance we may have to a physical nation cannot be subsumed under the allegiance of our Christianity. The good news comes to subvert expectations. And so it is this good news, this subversive gospel, this shocking gospel that Mark proclaims is the news of Jesus Christ. And he says it is this gospel that says the time is fulfilled.
So what exactly is this time that is fulfilled? What is this background that Mark is expecting? Now, quite frankly, I don't have time tonight to go through the entirety of the Old Testament, although I would love to do so. So we want to hit a couple of highlights. What particularly is this expectation of Jesus? Because when the Jewish readers, or the Jewish hearers and readers, were hearing this for the first time, there's a picture they have of someone claiming to be Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. They have an expectation. And those expectations were shaped by these Hebrew scriptures. We're going to look at just a couple of them right now. The first of these is going to be perhaps the fundamental text of the Jewish nation in Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17, if you turn with us, it's one of the promises that is made to Abraham, the patriarch of this small tribe of Israel, the founder of this nation, and really the beginning of the story. In Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1, After the birth of Ishmael, it says that when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, Behold, my covenant is with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. A detail that's added in a later rendition of this promise in chapter 29 and verse 13 is not only is this going to occur that uh, Abraham's family is going to be blessed, but indeed that all the families, all the nations of earth are going to be blessed. And so the very fundamental storyline of Israel is that they are a chosen people, not because Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or any descendant of Abraham is particularly better than the rest of the world, but through God's grace and through God's mercy. This is how he has chosen to correct the problems of Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 and Genesis 11. This is how God will work to bless not just this chosen people, but all of creation, all of the world. And so this is that covenant promise that weaves its way through the entirety of the Old Testament. It is why God intervenes in Exodus to rebuke the claims of Pharaoh that he is not God, but that Yahweh alone is God, and that Yahweh will bring his people out of the land and into their promised home. There's a lot of history in between there, but we know that when, uh, when the Israelites approach the promised land, despite some uh, bumps and some lumps along the way, as they approach the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 18, there's a further promise made now hundreds of years after Abraham himself, God has remained faithful to Israel. This seed that began with Isaac has sprung into 12 tribes, a mighty multitude of people, but a people of exiles, a people of slaves, a people that again, it is surprising that God picks. Not a people naturally skilled in warfare, but a people used to making bricks, a people of wanderers, a people of sheep. And yet it is this people 
that God says in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Moses in his final speech says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. In very much a sense, this is foreshadowing the rise of prophets who would be a continuous factor throughout Israel's history. But you begin to get this idea of a singular prophet. That out of this nation that Israel has become, there would be this singular figure that would become in many ways a new Moses. Moses had been the intermediary between Israel and God. And if Israel is to be the intermediary between the nations and God, you see the critical role that Moses would play that Moses was the giver of the law, Moses was the teacher of Israel, Moses was that connection point between the divine and between the earthly. And God tells Moses, as Moses is about to die, that there will come somebody after you who will not only be like you, but will be greater than you. And so there is this, this beginnings of this hope, this developing picture that there is going to be a greater Moses. But it's not just a greater Moses that Israel's raised to expect. As they go into the land, they conquer the land. There's then a long period where they don't do so well in the land. But as their history develops, as their relationship with God develops, there comes a figure who is very different from Moses, who serves a different function than Moses. And that is the man David. David is this leader that Israel needs throughout the entire book of Judges. We are told in that day there was no king in the land of Israel. And the implication is that was a big problem. That Israel need that strong leader like a Moses, like a Joshua, who could direct them in their task to be the priest of the world. And so a man after God's own heart was raised up. And so we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the very pinnacle of David's career as king. After he has conquered Jerusalem, after he has brought great success into the land, he attempts to build a temple for the Lord. And he's told, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, that no, that's, that's not your job. You're not going to build a temple, actually. That'll be your son's job. But perhaps as a way of assurance, perhaps as a way of comfort in a disappointing moment, God says, you wish to build me a house, and yet I have something greater in store for you. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever." As we see, there's this developing picture, and more prophets will add in aspects tying in the priesthood to this. And we begin to get this picture of a singular figure that all of these narrative threads begin to coalesce into, of Moses the lawgiver, of a priest greater than Aaron, of a king greater than David. Can you see why first century Israel, as they are beginning to warm to this, as they are beginning to realize the implications of this, 
you understand why their picture is of a greater Caesar? Do you see why their picture is of somebody who is wise enough and strong enough and holy enough and powerful enough that he will defeat Caesar, that he will overthrow Rome, he will restore Israel back to its place of prominence? This is the expectation of Israel. Okay, he's going to be greater than Moses. He's going to be greater than David. He's going to be greater than Aaron. He's going to fulfill all these promises that Israel will serve the world. What a king he will be. What a priest he will be. What a prophet he will be. And yet the prophets offered a word of warning. They offered a word of correction and said, no, actually he's going to be quite different than what you expect. Turn over, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah, perhaps the most bluntly, seeks to correct the misunderstanding of who this man was going to be. Sometimes I wonder how much Isaiah himself understood what he was saying. Sometimes I wonder what Isaiah's picture of this suffering servant would be. In many ways, I think Isaiah reflects in his own life this servant. In many ways, the prophets are the suffering servants of God. When you hear the language that's being used here in these messianic songs, when you hear the the, the suffering that undergoes, surely even these prophets must have realized there's something greater going on here. And so in Isaiah, we're actually going to start in in chapter 52 and verse 13. Isaiah prophesies and says, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, just as many people were astonished at you, my people. So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. And he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Can you imagine hearing 
Isaiah first saying this. One, trying to sort through that very dense poetry. But even as later readers would read this, and they're seeing all these promises of Abraham and Aaron and Jacob and Isaac and Moses and Joshua and David, all these storylines coalescing. And they're reading Isaiah, and it's like, it sounds like this guy fails. We don't even know he's the guy. He shows up, and we're all like, that's eh, just some bum, just some guy. There's nothing fancy about him. In fact, we kill him. He's, he's put to death. How does, how does that work? That he dies, and he doesn't overthrow anyone. In fact, he doesn't even fight back. He goes to death like a sheep. How is this the person we're looking for? And so you can see perhaps how Israel would say, no, I think, I think, we'll, I think we'll have a different picture of this. We'll focus on the, on the Davidic Psalms. We'll focus on the king, on the, on the winning, on the battles. And yet their picture was flawed. Because they trusted in the ways of men, not the ways of God. The gospel is surprising. The good news of who Jesus is is shocking. He is the greater David. He is the king who is unbeaten. But he is victorious through death. He is victorious through suffering. And Mark makes no bones about that. When people meet Jesus in the gospel of Mark, they're thoroughly confused about him. Nobody has any idea who he is except for the demons. They know. But every man who meets him has no idea who he is. Even his closest followers have no idea what he is because he is so confusing to them. How is this to be the king, the anointed one, the son of David, if all he does is just walk around and talk? He won't do anything. He won't overthrow the Romans. He won't fight back. Who is this man? And yet, as we come to the New Testament we see that John, the last of the prophets, that linchpin between the Old and the New Testament, understood that this was through the will of God what was going to happen. If you turn over to Luke chapter 3. John, in fact, uses similar prophetic passages to say, no, this was actually exactly what it was. Now the time is at hand. Can you imagine how exciting that would have been for people to hear the first time? That John, who is proving himself to be a prophet through his miracles, he is proving himself to be a man of God, and he says the wait is over. For hundreds of years we have heard nothing, and now you hear the word of the Lord. And in fact, in Luke chapter 3, he says in verse 4, that as actually we'll say in verse three, that he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Notice the scriptural basis for that all the way back here. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight. The rough road smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. John says it's time. Get your roads in order. The king is coming. Clear out all the debris in your life. The king is coming. Remove those stones and the boulders and the trees and the ravines. Fill it all in. The king is coming. And he points and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And it's, it's this carpenter from Nazareth. He's not wearing fancy clothes. He's not doing anything really cool. It's his cousin, in fact, if you actually know John. You're just like, John, that's your cousin. We, we know him. We, we grew up with him too. Like, we, we, we got it. Like, that's not him. Who's the real guy? And he says, I'm not fit to untie this sandal of this man. 
I'm baptizing you with water. He will baptize you with the Spirit. He must rise and I must fall. The time is fulfilled. And so all of these expectations are swirling around Jesus. And John, who is recognized by the people as a prophet, is saying, this is the guy. And many will follow Jesus. Many from John's disciples will hear this and will attach themselves to Jesus and say, okay, this has got to be the guy. We don't know how. He's really confusing and he speaks really weird and he keeps telling these parables that we don't really understand. He doesn't, won't do anything about the Romans, but okay, we're going to keep following him. And he keeps surprising them. He keeps saying weird things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood. He keeps saying weird things like, love your enemies. We're like, that's the Romans. We hate them. Like, that's why you're here, to destroy them. He says, no, I'm here to love them. I'm here to save them too. The gospel is shocking. But that shocking gospel, that subversive gospel, that is the one that Paul says it was all coming to this. Paul takes a very broad view of this if you turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Paul doesn't just think that this is the culmination of the Old Testament. He, in fact, doesn't really see that divide like we do between Old Testament and New Testament. He looks at a far cosmological perspective. He says that everything, all of creation, all of history led to this moment. And he says in Galatians chapter 4, as he is speaking to a people who are tempted to leave the truth of this gospel, who have said, no, this gospel doesn't fit our demands. It doesn't fit what we need. It doesn't give us a clear checklist of righteousness. We'd rather go back. We don't want to go through with this. And he says in chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Here the, here the cosmological, the, the time and space language he's using. We were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. This is not just a story about one tribe. This is a story of all creation. He says, when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says everything has changed. This is not merely the culmination of one epic in Israelite history. He says all of space and time has been building towards this moment. The Hebrew author will say creation was done through Jesus for this moment. We are transformed in this moment. Romans says that creation has been groaning, the physical creation groans under the expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Every, every, it's, it's this tension, this tightening, every fiber of being was waiting for this moment, this freedom from the elemental things, this freedom from the bondage of sin and death. And it was this carpenter from Nazareth that releases the tension, that takes that tension upon himself. Not of need, but of free volition. And all of history is changed in that moment. And so what are we to do then? Paul says it doesn't just change everything else. It changes us. 
We who were slaves are now sons. Do you hear that Exodus language? We who were slaves in Egypt, slaves to the powers of the world, we have now been brought forth to be sons, to be heirs to the promises of God. Paul says you can't go back to what you were. The world can't go back to what it was. Nothing can undo what Christ has done. And so what are we to do about this? Now part of this, you've got to come back tomorrow. You've got to hear the rest of this. But I will tell you one thing that it means for us. We must proclaim the same good news. That does not just mean saying this verse. We're going to talk about this tomorrow, that this is more evangelism, euangelion. Gospel is more than just words. Gospel is a life. When you heard the news of a new emperor in Rome, you didn't just say, oh, okay, cool. When you heard the defeat of the Persians on the border, when you heard the defeat of Gaul or of Germania, it wasn't just, oh, okay, cool. It changed everything. It changed the nature of your daily life. It changed all of these things of the way that Rome worked. Can we say any less for those of us who serve the true king? Can we hear this news that all of creation has been bent towards this purpose, this purpose being our redemption, this purpose being our ascendance to the sons and daughters of God? Can we hear that news? Can we hear that purpose of our life and say, eh, okay, cool, got that checked. I'm going to keep doing my life like I normally do. That cannot be. That cannot be our response to this. It cannot be our response that we say, I've heard this before. It can't be our response. We're like, yeah, I know this already. It can't be our response. I was like, yeah, I did that 40 years ago. I got that. I'm good. This has to be that same tension within us. Because we're going to talk about this tomorrow when we talk about what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God exists in this tension between a world that cannot go back to what it was, but a world that is not yet what it will be. A kingdom that is here, but it is not here in its fulfillment. And we exist in that tension of the space. We exist in the here, but not yet. That must be a daily walk. It must be a daily growth. It must be a daily advancement as we bear more and more of the image of the Son of God. This is our story. It is not just something that happened long ago. It is what is happening right now here. It is what is happening in all the outposts of the kingdom of God. We are telling a world that bows to Caesar that Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. That must be our defining purpose. And so as we reflect on these things tonight, as we continue to reflect on these things tomorrow, we must ask ourselves: has this mattered to us? Notice I'm not asking, did you do something? It's not just about doing something. I, I want you to do the thing. You need to do the thing. But it's also about the heart. Jesus came for whole human beings. He did not come just for our spirit. He did not come just for our body. He came for the soul, the bound person, the whole person. He wants all of you. Your time cannot any longer be divided between sacred and secular. Your life cannot be divided anymore between this is my God time and this is my me time. We have been bought body, soul, and spirit. We must respond in kind. We must 
feel that tension. I cannot engender that within you. No one can, but the Spirit of our God can. The Spirit that has been poured out upon us has been poured to a fullness beyond our comprehension. It should be overflowing out of us. It should be spilling out of us that everything we do must be just immersed in that life, in that kingdom that we proclaim. I hope and pray that is the zeal that you feel for these things. I hope and pray that this is not just something you did because the elders said, hey, we're gonna do one more thing on Saturday night. I hope you're here because you are zealous for the Lord. I hope you are here because you know the value of the kingdom. I hope you are here because you are ready to continue the good work that Christ has begun in us. I'm excited to get to know you all. I'm excited to spend time with you. I'm excited to learn more about how we can work for the kingdom, whether it be here or in other places. And I'm excited to do the good work that Christ has begun within us. A song has been selected. I encourage you to pull out your songbooks. If there's anything that we can do, if there's any response that you have to what has been said today, if the Spirit is moving you, if Christ is calling you, won't you let us know while we stand and while we sing?